Hello, friends. I'd like to welcome everybody here. It's retreat day here with SBT. The last Sunday of every month, we like to take a day. We call it a day of observance, and we dig into our practice a little bit. We have a re retreat with Sangha, and then we meditate and study, have a few teachings, and just try to <clears throat> dig into our practice a bit. Uh, today, we're giving some teachings on the Mahayana path, or a secular version of the Mahayana path, and the Bodhisattva and Bodhisattva vows. And the reason we're doing so is because just recently, a few days ago, we had a new group of uh, SBT Sangha members take Bodhisattva vows. <clears throat> and we haven't since we started offering bodhisattva vows maybe six months ago, we haven't had a proper teaching on some of the aspects like the six paramitas and things like that. So I thought we would make up for that and do it in today's retreat. We've all been working quite hard through the holidays, so I thought I would keep the teachings just light and brief. <clears throat> so... Um, on the first meditation, uh, first teaching today, I'd like to just talk about secular Mahayana Buddhism. And then on our second teaching, which is in a few hours, I think we, we would talk more about the details of it all. So um, with that said, when we look at Buddhism in the world, we have many different traditions, many different schools of Buddhist thoughts. We have Zen Buddhism from Japan and China. We have Theravada Buddhism from South Asia, from Thailand, uh, from Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar. We have Tibetan Buddhism from the Himalayas, which includes a lot of Himalayan countries, not just Tibet, but Bhutan and uh, the uh, Nepal and, of course, the Indian regions of the Himalayas. Um, but when we when we look at all these different uh, schools of Buddhist thought, we can really break them down into two major forms. We have Theravada Buddhism, and we have Mahayana Buddhism. Theravada Buddhism represents the oldest and uh, it's the most orthodox of the forms of of Buddhist thought. Um, they're often thought of as the most accurate. Of, uh, of the teachings of the Buddha the, uh, or the original teachings of the Buddha, where the Mahayana school uh, is a later development uh, which was based upon the Theravada. So the, uh, the Theravada tradition actually comes uh, into existence, not at the time of the Buddha, but actually quite a few hundred years later at that the time of King Ashoka in India, this is about 250 BCE. Um, before that, we, we usually call Buddhism uh, Hinayana, but um, King Ashoka took the many different schools of Hinayana Buddhism and brought them together and, and formed what, what is now called the Theravada tradition. And this, this tradition was then exported into the world in Sri Lanka and, and other places. So um, 
so this existed for a few hundred years before the Mahayana comes into play. So the Mahayana is seen as uh, coming into existence at maybe around 200 uh, BCE, uh, sometime after the Theravada. Uh, now, it's important to remember that when we're talking about this age of Buddhism, we're talking, you know, 200 to 500 years before the birth of Christ. So uh, what we actually know historically about this time is quite fragmented. Um, when you talk to orthodox teachers of these traditions, you know, they speak like it's all set in stone and this is, this is exactly the way Buddhism was formed and this is the Buddha's life. But the fact is we actually know very little about this time. We know, uh, we know, what we do know about it comes from the Buddhist scriptures and, and from some other traditions, some of the other religions at the time uh, talk about Buddhism. But uh, generally, there's a lot less known than, than we should really give credit to. So, um, uh, especially secular Buddhists, we're quite suspicious of uh, the accounts of Buddhism and the history of it. Nowadays, there's a lot of historians trying to go back and reanalyze these uh, original stories and things and seeing what can really be deduced as uh, as truth. Siva Bachelor is one of them. He likes to go back to the very early Buddhist scriptures and, uh, and have a, a new look at them, or I say looking at them through fresh eyes, which I think is what secular Buddhism is about. I often say that Secular Buddhism, we're not suspicious of the Buddha himself, but of the thousands of years of embellishment that were put upon his teachings. Like most religions, you know, the further we get away from the founder, the more religious and the more embellished things get. Um, so um, with that said, uh, let's get to... Uh, the origins of the Mahayana. So again, the origins aren't clear. They're, they're not even sure of a, any precise date at all that the Mahayana teachings come into effect. But um, one thing that seems more and more clear is that the Mahayana didn't just spring out as a different tradition, but actually uh, existed in the in the Theravada or Hinayana traditions and monasteries where uh, there's more and more proof that all of these uh, different traditions existed within the same monasteries practiced by the same monks. And that what, and the Mahayana probably started as just a, a handful of different documents that people would, would practice or uh, believe to be authentic. And it grew into its own tradition. Uh, the Mahayana is clearly a more religious style of Buddhism than the Theravada is, though I wouldn't let the Theravada off the hook on that one. Theravada Buddhism has a lot of what we would think of as religious aspects to it, you know, from believing the Buddha taught uh, his teachings to the to people in heaven and then came back to the earth and, and taught it himself uh, and things like that. Uh, but the Mahayana definitely is a stronger uh, is a stronger religious take on that. One second, please. And um, <clears throat> so, with the Mahayana teachings, um, 
we really start to get into more mystical thinking and more religious thinking. Um, there's a lot of hypotheses on, on where it came about. If you talk to a Mahayanist, especially in the Tibetan uh, tradition, they all believe that the Buddha himself taught these teachings and that the Mahayana were considered a higher uh, level of teachings that the Buddha taught in secret. And it wasn't until hundreds of years after the Buddha's death that these teachings surfaced and started to be taught publicly. Um, so, uh, but I think modern historians hypothesize that the Mahayana sutras and teachings uh, were possibly composed by forest monasteries, uh, meditators within them, who received these teachings through visions of various Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And they believe that because the Mahayana sutras are rendered in the voice of the Buddha. The, you know, it's the Buddha giving uh, first-person instructions to his Sangha members. And so uh, it's hard to believe that, uh, uh, that you know, the, it doesn't seem feasible that the Buddha could have actually taught these at all. Um, but through these uh, visions and things, uh, the authors rendered these scriptures, these Mahayana scriptures in the voice of the Buddha, thereby acknowledging their visionary sources and since saying that, well, in my vision, this is what the Buddha said to his followers. Um, so now, as far as uh, secular Buddhism goes, most secular Buddhist groups in the world are based on the Theravada tradition and based upon the early traditions of uh, the Theravada, which are called the EBTs, the Early Buddhist Tradition. And these are the very first of the sutras that many secular Buddhists believe them are possibly the most accurate uh, of what the Buddha taught. And they believe that as time went on and these later scriptures came about, they all uh, embellished upon what the Buddha taught. The early EBTs are very much they seem to be quite secular in nature, where um, it's interesting that the, the closer to the Buddha we get in far as the, the timeline of the, of the sutras and scriptures go, the less religious Buddhism looks. And so many people believe that the Buddha wasn't teaching uh, alternative to religion at all, where in, in his time we had the two religions in India of Brahmanism, which was an early form of Hinduism, and we had Jainism. And often Buddhism is posited as the middle way between the two, where the, the Jains were, <clears throat> were very strict uh, ascetists, and they, uh, they practiced very intense practices of uh, self-mortification, of, of starving themselves, of burning themselves with fire, and doing things like that to reach enlightenment. And where the Brahmins were quite the opposite, the Brahmins were householders and they believed that of uh, making male babies and living a good life and becoming prosperous and gaining wealth was the way to spiritual salvation. So Buddhism is seen as a middle way between the two. Um, and so what sets the Mahayana uh, path apart uh, generally, um, it's the Mahayana possesses a unique 
altruism in its style. So I like to think of it as that Theravada Buddhism uh, is taught more as an individual path to awakening. So if you, if you can imagine, this is the Buddha teaching to his disciples in the very early days of his uh, teachings. And um, he's teaching to a handful of uh, maybe a hundred or more students, and he's teaching everyone how to gain enlightenment themselves. <clears throat> and then, so hundreds of years later, as Buddhism begins to grow, especially around the time of King Ashoka, 2500 BCE, um, you have to remember that in the Buddha's day, Buddhism was, wasn't as popular as we often give it credit for. It was a small uh, movement with a small amount of people. Buddhism didn't start to become a, a presence in India until the time of King Ashoka. He's considered to be the first great Buddhist king. And um, so it's at this time, uh, just a little after King Ashoka, that the Mahayana appears to come into play. And so for me, I'd see the Theravada Buddhism as a path for individual liberation of the Buddha sharing with his students how to, how to become Buddhists. But then as Buddhism starts to gain popularity and becomes a mass movement, the, the scope of Buddhism changes from liberation of an individual to the liberation of all of society, of creating a liberated or enlightened state, all of, in, all of India becoming enlightened. So in this way, the Mahayana has to spread out and reach a much broader audience, as you can imagine. The Mahayana has to be interested in not just awakening monks, but also awakening everyone, all, all of the housekeepers, all of the merchants, all the workers. So the Mahayana is more of a universal vehicle, uh, a vehicle designed to awaken all of society itself. And so it branches out in this way. And uh, it starts to become very popular with the lay community. It's designed, I think, very much for the lay community. And, um, and merchants and things like that uh, start to really uh, embrace Mahayana Buddhism. And this is the great big boom in, in Buddhist history. This is when Buddhism really starts to spread all over India and all over the world. So that's how I think of the, of the Mahayana vehicle as a universal vehicle. And I think nowadays this vehicle is needed as much uh, or more now than ever because we are looking at a lot of calamities in our existence. And therefore, uh, we really need uh, to be able to awaken our, the masses as fast as possible. So... Um, most of the uh, secular Buddhist traditions, as I mentioned, are focused on the Theravada Buddhism and the early teachings. As far as I know, I think we're the only Mahayana secular Buddhist group. And um, one of the reasons for this was, um, to be honest, when we started SBT, you know, we were a new community and we're still kind of feeling our way through and figuring out defining ourselves and figuring out exactly who and what we are. Well, we started to get more and more requests by people wanting to take bodhisattva vows. 
And at the time, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, to be honest, at the time, I wasn't sure if I was still a Mahayana Buddhist, even though as a Tibetan Buddhist monk ordained in the Geluk tradition, uh, clearly I was ordained as a, a, a Mahayana monk. Um, and I did a lot of soul searching. Uh, first, I, I talked to the people that wanted to take Bodhisattva vows, and I tried to have some glimpse into their intention. And their intention seemed to be quite pure. Their intention was that they wanted to embrace uh, altruism and wanted to uh, use the altruistic intention to forward their progress and to benefit the world. And um, and so uh, through my soul searching, I was uh, reaching out to some friends. I reached out to one of my uh, Zen Buddhist monk friends, a very dear friend of mine. And I presented him with the question. And I said, I'm just not sure how I feel about it as a secular group. And he, and he said, well, what does it mean to you? What is, what is your, your Mahayana vows and your, and your practices meant to you? And, um, and after pondering it, I realized that by far, this had been the most meaningful thing in my path. You know, the Buddhism has so many wonderful aspects to it, you know, the practice of goodness and, and the Four Noble Truths and all of these things. But for me, the, the crown of the whole thing is Bodhisattva vows, is my commitment to achieving awakening for the benefit of all beings. As a monk, that's how I, that's how I kind of define myself as a monastic, that uh, I was uh, abandoning my life to benefit others. And um, so it became quite clear to me how important the Bodhisattva vows were still to me and clear that I was still indeed a Mahayanist and a Mahayanist Buddhist monk. So that was uh, an important point in, uh, in the evolution of SBT. Since then, we've been offering Bodhisattva vows and loving it, not looking back. It's been great. Uh, but there are some aspects of the Mahayana that are very difficult for secular Buddhists to deal with and we're still navigating the ground for it and most of it is the Mahayana sutras themselves which are full of wonderful and very exotic stories of deities and things like that um, and so uh, we're still coming to terms with that but some of the basics of the Mahayana are very clear to us that there are things that we want to uphold and some of those are uh, one of them is the three principal aspects of the Mahayana path. So the three principal aspects are said to, to embody, incorporate all of Mahayana Buddhism within it. And there are three qualities of renunciation, bodhacitta, and right view. Renunciation is a very specific renunciation. It's not just renouncing, you know, uh, uh, non-virtuous behaviors and actions and things like that. But here it's at a much deeper level. This is the renunciation of samsara itself. Um, and in Tibetan Buddhism, they define renunciation as the wish for freedom. That's how they define it. Isn't that lovely? But renunciation is the wish for freedom. Literally, uh, they would say uh, definite emergent, emergence, the definite determination to be free from samsara. And so this isn't just an intention. This is an experience where through meditation, through studying the Buddha's teachings, you really start to see the folly of 
regular life. You see everybody working hard to get ahead. They're, uh, everybody's trying to become important. Everybody's working hard at, at trying to, to uh, fulfill their, their daily needs. But in the end, it all, seemed, it all can seem quite pointless. It reminds me of, uh, of work where at one point I realized that the people I was working for were also the people that I was buying all my things from. And it's kind of funny, they pay you to work for them and then you end up buying all the things you need to sustain your life. But you start to see these traps in life. You start to see the truth of our reality that, that we're living in. And, um, and of course, this is samsara, you know, samsara isn't a place, samsara isn't uh, some type of hell, or samsara is a mental aspect, or a mental state, the way we look at the world, and samsara is uh, all our daily drama, samsara is all our unfulfilled wants, our egotism, our narcissism, uh, it's wanting excitement. It's wanting to be better than others. It's all our mental baggage that we, uh, at some point, hopefully we see through and we realize that it's, uh, that it's all uh, an illusion. And so renunciation is when we finally get to the point in our practice that we see that and we see how we're just living our lives on autopilot, you know, waking up, going to work, coming home, watching television, doing it all again, and uh, how in so many ways, there's not much meaning there for us. So that's the first aspect of the, the Mahayana path. And I would say that this is shared in Theravada Buddhism as well as renunciation, right? The second one is Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is, is completely unique to the Mahayana vehicle. And Bodhicitta is the altruistic intention to become a Buddha in order to liberate oneself and others from suffering. Um, but Bodhicitta is, is not just an intention, it's also a mental state. And Bodhicitta is a level that we reach where we we awaken to a type of altruism and compassion that is an awakened or enlightened compassion. Uh, we're going to talk about more. We're going to talk more about that later on today. But bodhicitta is—it's uh, not a theory or a thought. It's—it's it's an attainment. It's something that can be experienced firsthand, and um, and it's the ideal behind the whole Mahayana path. And the third is right view. Right view is the proper understanding of the Buddhist teachings and the true nature of oneself or reality. So we say right view, it's kind of like correct perspective. It's looking at reality, looking at ourselves, looking at our, our lives in the proper way, where we're, we're not living on autopilot. We see through all the traps and all the delusions. And uh, we, we finally understand ourselves and our reality. And through that, we're able to live better lives. And um, the other aspect, um, but so those are, the, those are called the three principal aspects of the Mahayana path. But then there's other aspects that are very much define, defining as far as Mahayana goes. And one of them is the concept of emptiness. Now, emptiness is a very deep and profound topic. So we'll just kind of talk a little bit about it. 
But the idea of emptiness is, it's there in Theravada Buddhism as well. In Theravada Buddhism, they call it selflessness. But it's just the idea that things don't exist uh, on their own. Things are, uh, things phenomena ourselves, all the things in, in, that we know of in the world around us, nothing is self-existent. Emptiness tells us that all things exist interdependently in connection with one another. But somehow we seem to see the world and we believe things exist all on their own. We don't see the causes and conditions that support everything. We don't see the inner kind of connection of all things in the, in the universe that exist. And when we do see that, that's a part of right view, getting the proper understanding of how uh, things exist in the world. Um, another aspect of the Mahayana path is a, is a concept called skillful means. Skillful means is a skillful method of conveying the Buddha's teachings uh, that pertain to a teacher's ability to adapt the teachings to the needs of students in particular groups in order to successfully communicate the Dharma. And so um, I often think that skillful means was designed as a way to cover up Buddhist scholars' mistakes. And I mean that in a funny way, but there is some truth to it. In the Buddhist teachings, there's quite a bit of things that don't seem to add up. There's, there's quite a, a few things that seem to, uh, to, uh, to not be compatible. And through, especially with the Mahayana and the Mahayana and the Theravada traditions. So because of this, the, uh, this idea of skillful means is presented. Now, I, I do think it's authentic. It's clear that the Buddha, uh, even within the early Theravada teachings, the Buddha teaches different teachings to different groups because of their understanding. And, and so that, that's clear throughout the teachings. But the Mahayana take it a step further, and they justify their teachings with saying that, well, the Theravada were the Theravada teachings were taught to less intelligent people um, who weren't ready for the Mahayana. So you can see how that's quite a quite something to say. The Theravada are not happy about that view whatsoever. But this is the idea where skillful means comes in, that, that the Buddha taught different ways to different types of people. And then the other thing that, uh, that defines the Mahayana is the six paramitas, or it's called the six perfections, um, the perfections of wisdom. Now, the six paramitas actually come from the 10 paramitas that are in Theravada Buddhism. But in Mahayana, they uh, put much greater emphasis on these. And the six paramitas, which are generosity, ethics, patience, joyful effort, concentration, and wisdom, are the main practice of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is the, is the highest state of the, of the Mahayana uh, tradition. Uh, so there's really two aspects to the, the practice. And one is through bodhicitta, which we talked about. And the other one is through here, through the six perfections. And um, with that said, well, we're gonna talk about more about that later, but let's just briefly talk about the bodhisattva. So the bodhisattva can be understood as, uh, 
as one who possesses bodhicitta. So we talked about bodhicitta being the altruistic wish to become a Buddha in order to benefit others. So a person who has that is the is bodhisattva himself. A bodhisattva is a being who is about to become a Buddha in the technical sense. And, and technically they would say a true bodhisattva is the lifetime before one becomes a Buddha. Uh, now, a lot of, of us don't believe in rebirth. It's up to the practitioners in SBT. I happen to currently have a belief in a belief in rebirth, um, but I, we don't teach rebirth because it is just my belief. I don't have any proof about it. So, um, but the story goes that a bodhisattva in his next life will become a Buddha. So that's the that's the what what really defines what a bodhisattva is. When we take bodhisattva vows, we're taking vows to aspire to become a Buddha. We're doing it's a training, so one day we may become a Buddha. So, so the bodhis the the bodhisattva uh, though the title is uh, comes from two words. The first bodhi meaning awakening, and sattva meaning being. So we can think of a, a bodhisattva translated as an awakened being. And so the bodhisattva is a very, very high pr practitioner. Uh, so for most of us with bodhisattva vows, we're aspiring to become bodhisattvas. And the bodhisattva is the one who possesses bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. Uh, either monastics or lay can take bodhisattva vows and become bodhisattvas, both men and women, all cultures, None of that matters, right? And so uh, besides having very high spiritual realization, the bodhisattva is also said to uh, possess ex uh, extraordinary or even superhuman powers of compassion. Um, in the Mahayana tradition, the ideal of the bodhisattva is the embodiment of the path as well as the immediate goal of practitioners. So when I think of bodhisattvas, of course, I think about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who um, is probably the most famous of all the eminent bodhisattvas in the world. And so um, that's a little bit of a take on the Mahayana for us all. And we're going to be learning a little bit more about the different aspects uh, lay, uh, in our next teaching. I wanted to give us a teaching on the six paramitas, and we'll talk a little bit about more about bodhicitta and a little bit more about emptiness. Uh, these, uh, we have text on these on the website as well, if you want to read more about it. Uh, it's on our, uh, if you go to the program section of sbtonline.org uh, in the Bodhisattva program, our page on that has text, including this one that we were working with today on secular Mahayana Buddhists. So for SBT, we're at the beginning of a path of, of defining what it means to be a secular Mahayanist. Uh, but th the exciting part is that we're, we're very clear and very sure that that's exactly what we are. And uh, since we've been giving our bodhisattva vows, and I have seen such an improvement in practice and in people's awakening. So I think uh, clearly we're doing an absolutely wonderful thing. Does anyone have any questions as I babble on and babble on?
What do you guys think? Yeah, I have a question. How how would one start on the path of uh, the bodhisattva? Sure. So the first of all, you can just start as you wish. You could read uh, text. You could uh, read up on the bodhisattva vows. Um, anything like that starts you on the way. The official start of the of uh, of entering the bodhisattva or the Mahayana path is by taking bodhisattva vows. Now, uh, I'd like to make a clear distinction. Uh, there's three things in Buddhism that we do: we study, we practice, and we train. We have training. Now, in the in the modern traditions of Buddhism, sadly, training has been abandoned. Uh, especially in the secular tradition, you know, everybody studies and some of the secular Buddhists are the most brilliant scholars and everybody practices. They all have a meditation practice or practicing mindfulness, but training is it's something that people haven't been uh, keeping up with and training as far as the Buddha thought was probably one of the most important out of, out of all of them. It represents the first section of the sutras of the Buddhist canon is what we call Vinaya, and this is training in the Bodhisattva path. So from taking refuge vows, where you take your first set of training, when we say training, it's training in awakened behavior. So we can study about Buddhism, we can meditate, but what, what's really important is actually training in awakened behavior. And this is ethical, ethical virtuous behavior or training in goodness, I like to simplify it. And so we start with our refuge vows. And in our tradition, we, we give the 10 virtuous acts. And you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. And, um, and that's the first training. And to be honest, this is what really changes people's lives. You know, I see it firsthand when I work with people. I know so many people that are studiers and meditators, but what really changes people's lives is the training. And so the, the taking bodhisattva vows is one of the most profound trainings I've ever seen. And when, when people take this, I can just watch their lives change. It's quite dramatic. And I, and I see such joy in them. The joy comes into practice where they're just, they're thrilled about practicing. And you don't have to officially take bodhisattva vows to practice your training. Some people like having official vows with a teacher, but between you and me, it's not needed. You can do it on your own. I give you my blessings. I'm glad to work with anyone who wants to work in that capacity. Does that help, Nigel? Yes, it does. Thank you. Right, right. As we were speaking there, I was loading up your website to look at it on my other device. So I'm, try I'm trying to uh, read and listen at the same time here. Um, but yes, that, that does help. Yeah. And um, later on today uh, in our retreat, um, I don't know what time that is, UTC. Uh, and I think, let me look at my schedule for a second. It's at 1900 UTC. I'm not sure what time that is in the States, but uh, if you've downloaded the schedule for the retreat, you'll see we have a purification ceremony and everybody's welcome to come. In the purification ceremony, we, we go through and everybody retakes their uh, refuge vows and their bodhisattva vows. You can 
come and witness it and just just to learn about our vows and hear them. Uh, you can't officially take the vows through the purification ceremony, but nevertheless, it's a good opportunity to learn about them. And so uh, you're definitely invited. All right, thank, thank you very much. I believe that's 2 p.m. on the East Coast, U.S. Sounds good. That, that, that's my understanding. So, okay, thank you. Great. We'll have to ask Angela and Beth if that's correct. It's like 10 o'clock at night in Istanbul. <laughs> so I hope that subject wasn't too dry. I didn't have much room for humor in it, but uh, important stuff to talk about. We we This is the first time we actually sat down and had a, formal teaching on uh, secular Mahayana Buddhism. So I think it was a really important teaching to have. On that note, I'm going to stop the recording.